you so much for joining us here today and for accepting our invitation. I understand it was a very tough decision to make. Uh, yes. There was some controversy before I came to your fine school, came to this wonderful place. Oxford, as I think you call it. <laughs> I received a lovely invitation to come here to these hallowed halls and speak to all of you. And I agreed and said, I'm coming. Then about two days later, I got the following email. And I hope it's OK to share it with you right now. Is that OK? May I share an email with you? Wow, you're a fun crowd. It's from another college, a college known as Cambridge. <laughs> this is the email that went right to my people two days after I accepted your kind invitation. I'm also aware that Conan's currently scheduled to visit Oxford for a similar event. It would be incredible if we could also feature in Conan's busy calendar. The Cambridge Union is older than the Oxford Union. <laughs> by eight years. <laughs> we are of the opinion that students here at Cambridge are, this is all word for word, <laughs> are more engaged, attentive, and more prone to asking insightful questions <laughs> as compared to their Oxford peers and would love the chance to prove this. I just want you... I just want you to know I got that email and I, I just immediately thought, who writes crap like this? <laughs> I'm going tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> so rude of them, I thought. You were very nice to invite me, and you invited me first. That's, you know, that's, that's I mean that. I mean that. I didn't say that just because I'm here and I want to suck up to you people. Well, we never say that to people we're trying to get from Cambridge, that we're a better crowd. That's because you're secure. <laughs> you know? You guys know you're the best, and you don't have to tell anybody you're the best. There's something dreadfully wrong and insecure about those Cambridge people. They frighten me. And I will not go there unless I'm paid. I don't know why I'm shouting. I have a microphone, but there's something about this hall and this institution that makes me want to say, I demand freedom and freedom, we shall have it! <laughs> you can literally say anything in here and it sounds more majestic than it really is. <laughs> I think Starbucks burns their coffee and I'll die saying it! This isn't going to be a real conversation. I'm going to act like a jackass the entire time. And there's nothing you can do about it. I think Cambridge made the right choice. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll behave. I promise. So on your podcast, you talk. Huh? <laughs> wow, what an energy drop. No, it's not your fault. You, just, you went right into conversational tone. I had just said we were going to free all of the peoples of the world and get rid of Starbucks coffee, and then we went into the podcast. There's no, there's no easy ramp from one to the other. But let's get into it, the podcast. You talk a lot about the journey of becoming a professional comedian. Yeah. When was it that you realized that that was what you wanted to do? Well, when I was a, uh, man, when I was a kid, I loved making, I come from a big Irish Catholic family, uh, six kids, I believe there's others out there. Uh, <laughs> you'd meet a new one occasionally in the bathroom. Uh, 
But, uh, and I was packed in the middle, and I used to make my brothers and sisters laugh, and then I made other kids at school laugh, but I never thought it was a profession. I grew up in uh, Brookline, Massachusetts, right outside Boston. Don't pretend. And, uh, <laughs> and I thought, um, you can't be in show business. I, I didn't know anybody in show business. My father is uh, a brilliant man. He's a, a microbiologist, infectious disease scientist, and my mother is a brilliant woman and uh, was a lawyer for a big law firm. And I just thought my job was to buckle down and be serious. So I was always fighting this nature and thinking, you can't do that for a living, you have to be serious. So I worked hard. And uh, I'm, again, I just thought comedy was something you did for your friends. And then my life changed when I went to what we consider an old <laughs> university, Harvard. Uh, <laughs> it's so hilarious that we are so proud of the fact that Harvard's like 1638. And then you come here and it's, they have McDonald's that are that old. And, <laughs> <laughs> and now I live in Los Angeles where Sometimes people will come to and look at your house, you know, they'll come and fix, because something's wrong with the basement, and they'll say they're here to fix it, and they'll be, oh man, you got one of these old houses. What a, they built this during Obama's first term, huh? <laughs> so uh, I've had to, um, I went to Harvard, and I had worked really hard, and I was a serious student, and the second I got there, a friend of mine said, I'm off to the Lampoon, uh, and I said, what's that? like an idiot, and he said, it's the College Humor Magazine, and I said, well, I'll tag along. And I got addicted. I slept there, I lived there, I became my life uh, running the place. Uh, I mean, it was very evocative of this place. It was this, uh, it's this old hall, it's got these old traditions, many famous writers and cartoonists have come there. Now, of course, a lot of the TV shows uh, you, you watch or have seen uh, have been written or produced by Lampoon people. It's really a wonderful, amazing place. And I'm not saying this because of your connection there, but it really did feel like my Hogwarts experience when I went there. It was, it was, uh, they, I, I worked very hard. I got accepted. I was 18 years old. And I just said, whatever this is, I'm throwing in my lot with these people. And that would have been 1981. Uh, when I was accepted, and since that day, I've been thinking and breathing comedy pretty much 24-7 since then, and that changed my life. When I graduated uh, college in 85, I thought, how do I keep doing this? I need to keep doing this. Even if I don't make money doing this, I have to do this, and fortunately, uh, it turns out it does pay, uh, <laughs> and I worked on Sound Out Live, I worked on a few shows, then I worked on Sound Out Live, uh, and then I worked on The Simpsons, and, um, and then I got my own show, and now I'm here. So I, it, it, is, it feels miraculous to me. I'm, I'm very, uh, people overuse the word grateful in my business. They say I'm really grateful when uh, deep down inside they're total assholes and they're not grateful, but, <laughs> but I really am. I do, I do feel... <laughs> I'm a really good guy, <laughs> and that's something good guys say. <laughs> but no, I, it's been just a really great journey, and my favorite thing is connecting. So I don't care how I do it, but not that long ago, uh, someone came to me and said, you should do a podcast, and I said, why would I do a podcast when I have a TV show that's been on forever and it's on YouTube? And they said, I think you might like it. And I really thought it was a stupid idea, and I started doing it, and I can't tell you, I can go anywhere in the world and people listen to the podcast very differently than they watch a show. They get to know you and you can, uh, I've had so many friends of mine who I called up and asked, they're very unselfconscious. Lisa Kudrow, when I asked her, do you want to do the podcast? She said, no hair, no makeup, I'll be there in 10 minutes. <laughs> they, they really do love the fact that they don't have to pretend to be someone else. And then you can have this incredibly powerful conversation with them and you can get to things that you could never do in television, I have to make a, you'd have had to take two commercial breaks by now if this was on television. <laughs> Seriously, uh, you know, for horrible products. Uh, and, <laughs> but here, you don't, it's, it, it, in this podcast format, you can attain this kind of connection you can't attain any other way. So I absolutely 
love it. And I love the friends. I mean, in this short time, the couple of days that I've been here in London and then here, I've had so many people come up to me, people that have no idea I'm coming here, say, oh, I love the podcast. The podcast is meaningful to me. And uh, so that's, that's lovely. And you've been on air for decades. What, what do you do to keep the show fun for you? For uh, so fun for me? Yeah. We uh, fire people. <laughs> you, sh you should see the look on their faces. <laughs> These are people with children. <laughs> they have mortgages. <laughs> and I'm like Caligula at this point. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm firing you and hiring my horse, you know? And so that's fun. Uh, I would say um, one of the challenges with anything is, uh, and everybody has this issue, I don't care who you are, if you're, whatever your field is, you've gotta keep it fresh for yourself. For me, I think I've been fortunate that I've been forced to reinvent it many times. Um, the initial show uh, was one show that then gradually morphed into a slicker, more polished show. It started in 93. I think it got a little more polished around 2001, 2002. And then it morphed into The Tonight Show, and I went out for that, but that all blew up because I got into a big argument with my network, and I ended up uh, forced to redecide who I was. And it was, this, it was a huge story in America, and I had to figure out, okay, who am I now, and start again on a different network. And that has gone through about two revolutions. So, and now we've changed the format again to half hour because an hour long, I started looking at my hour long show and looking at how it's represented on YouTube, which is how most people see it and should see it. And I said, these two don't relate to each other. So I changed my show to look more like it would on YouTube. We just do half an hour and I talk to one person as opposed to a show that is uh, comedy, First guess that you want to see, second guess you don't care about, third guess you don't care about. <laughs> and I hate to say that to the second and third guests of the world, but right, I decided I'm too long in the tooth, I've been doing it too long, I don't want to say it was great talking to you, now we're going to stick around for that guy who's 19 and he just got on a show where he plays a brooding teenager, he's never had a life experience. Um, <laughs> His big disappointment in life is they didn't have the Porsche in the color gray he wanted, and uh, I'm supposed to pretend to care about him. So um, I couldn't do that anymore. So we, we just shoved it down to a half hour, and then I talked to one person. Here's Will Ferrell. I have a great time talking to him. We do much more than half an hour for the studio audience, and we put all of it on YouTube because there's no time restraint there, and then we cut it down to half an hour for Turner and Warner Brothers. So, to me, that feels like how shows, that's how shows should be made now. I'm not saying my other, my compatriots are in the dark ages, but, <laughs> well, <laughs> come on, do the math, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> no one drinks here, I don't get it, but anyway. You also talk a lot about wanting your comedy to be evergreen so someone can watch a skit 20 years from now. Yeah, my, my favorite comedy is, uh, Right now in the States, as I'm sure you're all aware, it's, people are very angry, and so I almost feel like comedy has gone in two completely directions. It's, you know, there are people that have been, it's all about, I mean, all about politics. The entire show is politics. And so when you see the roundup for what they talked about, it's blank, took down Donald Trump today, so-and-so roasted, you know, uh, uh, this person in the administration. It's all that, and some of it's very clever and very good, but it's all that. And then there's another kind of comedy which is completely escapist, let's play games, let's have fun, and then I feel like I just found my own thing that I like, which is really silly comedy that I've been doing since 1993, where I'm doing the show and maybe someone interrupts me and it's an old coal miner in the audience, and then we have an adventure together, and uh, it doesn't make any sense. It's not linked to anything. We use puppets. Uh, <laughs> I love puppets. Uh, I love any stuffed animal that's objecting to something that I've done. Uh, I love comedy that just makes me laugh and is silly, and then I think one of the things that's nice is I have people your age coming up to me now, and they're saying, oh, I just saw that thing last night, where you, you know, um, you were uh, 
God only knows. You, you got on a bicycle and you, you drove up a Caramel Mountain and you visited God and it was so silly and stupid and it meant nothing, but I really liked it and I'll think, wait a minute, we made that in 1994, uh, or 1995. Uh, we had a very popular character on the show for a couple of years called the Masturbating Bear. And uh, <laughs> it was a bear in a diaper that just masturbated on cue. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but those are the things you talk about when you invite me. And uh, <laughs> you wanna talk economics, we'll do that next time, but this is what you get. But um, it was just the silliness of it and the craziness of it that I love so much. And so we're still finding people that come back and see those old sketches and, and really like them. And, I like them because you don't have to know, it's not comedy that goes bad 24 hours after you make it. Because the outrage over that decision to cut that item in the budget doesn't make sense 24 hours after you've said it. But a bear masturbating is always good comedy. <laughs> so like you said, you don't react to political and current affairs as much as other well, we do. Too. We do if we have a good, silly, fun idea, but I try not to live off of it exclusively, you know? I try to, so everyone has their own way of doing these things. There's not a right way and there's not a wrong way. There's just the most important thing I say to people who are interested in doing what I do for a living is do the stuff that you are passionate about. And I've always been passionate about silliness and the stuff that influenced me I was very influenced by English comedy growing up. I loved Monty Python. I loved Black Adder. I loved The Young Ones. I would watch all these shows. And then, uh, um, you know, I, I saw uh, the, the British Office came out. And I just love that those are still funny now. It's, they're talking about universal themes, you know. Uh, and, and to me, that's the kind of comedy that I love. It's, it's completely silly, and it's dealing with human situations rather than here's what happened in the news today, which I admire, I think it's really great, I just don't think that's my skill set. And something else that you always come back to is that really successful people are often a lot more insecure about their work than we would expect them to be. Yeah. How does that work for you? Well, I'm not, but... <laughs> just blessed, I suppose. Uh, no, I... Um, you know, it's, it's actually... A, a very, it's really important to me if you leave with no other little, um, if you leave with nothing else today or tonight, leave with this. We have a very, uh, we have a culture that's constantly looking at our phones, at people that we think are so incredibly happy and have everything. And I will tell you for a fact, the disparity, the difference between what they're projecting and how they are is monumental a lot of the time. It's not that these people are all miserable, but um, I do think we're this Instagram age and this age of projecting wealth and fame and what's, the, what's the, this incredible fun that you can have. There's a lot of people out there that strive because they're insecure. They try harder because they're running from something or they're very unhappy. It's not the only reason they're successful, but it's a mixed bag. And when you get successful, there's some unpleasant stuff that comes with it and there's dealing with envy, and there's dealing with schadenfreude, and there's dealing with um, other people's expectations that you're always gonna be that person. And I wouldn't trade my life for anything in anyone else's in the world. I'm very happy, but I do think I've seen so many people in my profession, American uh, performers, actors, comedians, who I wouldn't wanna be in a million years. They're just, they're unhappy people. And, there's a lot of unhappy people, just as there are everywhere. And I think we get this, we get this bad read. We just, we're only seeing this very uh, flattened out image of them laughing and driving a sports car. And we think, if I had that, all my problems would be solved. And I remember thinking that, you know, when I was first starting out in the business, if I had what these people had, then I would have no problems. And uh, that's why I really do try to tell people that, You've got to enjoy what you do. You have to enjoy it. And there's so many people, so many people that want to be famous for fame's sake. And fame is nothing. I mean, it, it is just a clear broth. It doesn't, doesn't add much flavor. Doesn't, it doesn't have any nutritional value. I'm, you know, I can go with this broth analogy forever. <laughs> if you put meat in it for a long time, that meat will soften. Uh, 
fame is high in salt. Uh, um, and uh, I, you know, I, I just, I just, I just encourage people to look twice at that and say, I do what I do because I really do enjoy it. I really do like making this kind of stuff, and I felt like I had some facility for it, but um, I never enjoyed the brief periods of time that, uh, that someone on the paparazzi has wanted to take a picture of me. It just felt creepy. It felt, and, and, uh, and they eventually realized I'm the most boring person in the world. <laughs> and that their pictures of Conan O'Brien goes and buys 2% milk again, uh, <laughs> wearing sensible outfit uh, <clears throat> with dad bod, uh, was like not selling, you know? I had a funny experience here a couple of years ago. I was in London and a friend, I didn't know this place, but a friend said to me, join me for dinner. And I said, okay. And he said, I'm, I'm at the Chilton Firehouse. I didn't know what that was, but I guess it's this place where a lot of stars go. What's that? You don't go there all the time? I don't know. <laughs> well, okay, clearly I've just made a fool of myself in front of everyone. But there was this place in London, this restaurant where the paparazzi would hang out in front. We have them in LA and you go there if you want your picture taken. I didn't know that. So I just go in and then I eat my dinner and I come out and it's all these people from all these UK paparazzi with the giant, you know. And they walk out and I think one guy sort of knew me and took a picture, so they all started taking pictures, and there was like 40 people just firing away photos. And so I did this, you know. <laughs> and then I started to walk away, and they all put their cameras down, and one of them said, hey, who the fuck are you? <laughs> I said it was, I, this is true, I said, I'm a male model from Germany. <laughs> that they took a picture of me, didn't know who I was, and they were yelling at me. <laughs> essentially, because I wasn't famous enough, you know? It was just such a weird dynamic. I had, I had wasted their time. <laughs> so. Um, on another note, following on from that. <laughs> there was no transition there at all. <laughs> we're gonna have to edit that for YouTube. We'll put something else in there, you know? Maybe some rock music or something. ACDC. What's your attitude? What's what? What's your attitude to criticism of your work? Do you try to seek it out, or are you someone who tries to? No, I do not seek out criticism of my work. <laughs> no. You know, that's one of the things that uh, always surprised me is I've had guests come on the show, very famous people, and they've confided in me, oh, I'm you know, after my last appearance, people said this about me or said that. I actually had a guest come on my show and in the commercial break say to me, last time I was on, people were saying, this was a man, people were saying that I had had terrible plastic surgery and it really hurt my feelings and I haven't had plastic surgery. Why would they write that? Well, this is in the commercial break. And I said to this person, why are you reading that? Why would anybody, anyone can write anything why would you read that? And there is something in this new world that you're all dealing with. Uh, I'm quite comfortable not knowing what people say about me. I just, people have said some, and my deal that I made with myself is I don't want to read the bad stuff, and so I won't read the good stuff. And um, I'm told there's been some really nice things written in some really nice publications, and I just say, that's nice to hear, and people give me this sort of gist of what it is, but I don't want to read it. Because if I read that, then I feel I have to go looking for, well, I hate him, you know? His hair looks like a ridiculous pastry, you know? Uh, <laughs> uh, my father wrote that. Uh, um, I don't want to, you know, and, and I, that's one of the questions that I have is when people start looking for, it is in my nature, I will find the unsmiling face in the crowd and wonder, what was his problem? Why wasn't he having a good time? And that is classic. All comedians do that. But as you get older, um, you learn that, that just that way lies madness. No, no good will come of that. None. So um, I'm not, I know what it is I do. I have really good friends. And my friends tell me that wasn't great or that was funny. That wasn't so funny. I would change that. I mean, I, I write a tweet and I say, what do you think? And I have 
interns in the office saying, nope, it's bad. And I, I listen to them. I listen to other people. And sometimes I get into arguments with people. I think, really? Because I think this is a good idea. But I try not to have an ego about it. And so people usually let me know when I've missed the mark. I'll know. So I don't need a random person um, you know, who's, uh, or a troll to tell me that I suck. Because deep down, I know that. <laughs> That's not funny. <laughs> you should feel sad now. You mentioned taking on board the advice of your interns, and part of what makes your show stand out is your relationship with your staff and how that's woven into so many episodes. Yeah. Was that a conscious production choice, or was it something that happened it just, spontaneously? You know, there's an old, the most famous, um, he was completely unknown in the UK, but the most famous talk show host of all time in America was this guy named Johnny Carson, who I grew up watching. He's brilliantly funny, and he was, and everybody watched him. I mean, the entire country watched Johnny Carson. And what he said once is, he was on the air for 30 years, and no one had ever done that. No one had ever been on the air for 30 years. And he said once, um, you'll, use a, you'll end up using everything you have, meaning if you've got any kind of skill or any kind of ability or anything up your sleeve, you will end up using it. And I found that to be true. You end up using whatever is available to you uh, when you have to do so much uh, TV. So when there's so much product, you end up trying anything. And you know, we're, it's like we're living in a, we're working in a bakery and we have to be open 24 seven. You'll end up trying stuff like, I'll just throw a carrot in there and see what it'll sound, you know, um, broth if you will. Uh, and, <laughs> You end up trying things, and that's what we ended up doing. And uh, uh, our staff is there, and my, my assistant is this personality, and we were doing tons of hours of comedy without even realizing it. We have these long, insane conversations with each other, and then we realized, wait a minute, what if we put a camera on this? And the interesting thing about Sona, my assistant, if you've seen any of this stuff on YouTube, she doesn't change. She's always, this, she is the same person. You can put a camera on her. You could put her in Wembley Stadium and have 75,000 people stare at her. She'll still act like Sona and then want to go get a grilled cheese sandwich afterwards, you know, and go home to her husband. She's just that person. So we started using those people and um, it's added a whole other layer, you know. Uh, we ended up realizing we have this great resource, so we might as well use it. Um, and we don't want to overdo it, but uh, some of these people, I have a guy that works for me named Jordan Schlansky, who <laughs> is, yeah. The idea that in this great historic hall, <laughs> that is seen like Churchill and Einstein and Malcolm X, the idea that the name Jordan Schlansky would be mentioned and get a round of applause <laughs> is, such a cosmic joke to me. It's such a, <laughs> such proof that there's ultimately, it's a silly world we live in. He is that guy. He is that person. He's this weird, strange guy. I honestly don't know what he does on the show. Every, every time I ask him, he says, I have various tasks and duties. And I'm like, what does that mean? Well, I attend to various, he keeps saying various and then throwing other words in there. And I honestly don't know what he does. So um, we're very excited because, do uh, you guys know the Property Brothers, those guys? Is that, is that big over here? I don't know if you guys know them, but uh, his office is a mess and we brought these two huge YouTube stars in and surprised him with the Property Brothers and they're these big stars and we walk in and I go, Jordan, look who's here to clean up your office. Doesn't even get up. <laughs> Looks at them and I went, Jordan, when people walk into the room, especially famous people, you should probably stand and he went, their fame is of no consequence to me. <laughs> they can come or they can leave. You know, just like he doesn't, we just surprised him with cameras. He had no idea we were coming. Most humans would react a little bit. I see no reason to stand for these people, you know. It's fascinating. He's a weird, weird man and we're, uh, we're maybe, I hope we're advancing the cure for something by putting him on TV. I, <laughs> You also, you just mentioned Johnny Carson. Yeah. What, and I'm sure you were a fan of him while growing up. What yeah. was it like to meet someone like that and realize that they're a fan of you too? Uh, well, he wasn't, so. 
I'm not kidding. He didn't really know me. I was brand new. And when I got my start in America, um, I was a complete unknown. I was a Simpsons writer. And they were looking for this big slot to fill. And today, they would have thousands of qualified candidates because of um, YouTube and the internet. They'd have, they'd have, there's so many people. Everyone has 75 episode, shows on Netflix, you know, by the time they're in utero. Uh, and <laughs> live from the womb, you know. And so the idea that, that they would, when, if there was a giant opening for a show, if Stephen Colbert decided he was going to step down, there'd be a million, you'd know all the names of all the people who were probably going to replace him. And I had this very strange moment in time where it was pre-internet, so after Carson, I would say the biggest host uh, was this guy, David Letterman, and he suddenly left, and there was a hole, and they said to my boss, my former boss at Saturday Night Live, um, can you find somebody to fill it? And he went, let me think, and then through a series of just crazy chances, he said, you know, there's this writer I know with weird hair and a weird name who makes the other writers laugh. And they were like, well, does he do stand-up? No. <laughs> Has he done anything? Not on camera. You're kidding, right? No, I think he might be good. And so they gave me a tryout, and I did really well at the tryout. And they gave me the show. And the entire United States said, what, who is this? <laughs> Con what's a Conan? Who is this person? <laughs> Seriously. And then for the first year I was on the air, I was never one-tenth as funny as I was on the audition. Because it's one thing to audition for something you don't think you're going to get. So I walked into the audition. I'm like, I'm never getting this. And, da, 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 and, ba, da, da. and back then, in the early 90s, that was funny. And, <laughs> but I, you know, I just thought, oh, you know, I'm not getting this. And I was so relaxed that they said, this guy's got it. You know, put them on. And then uh, the next thing you know, I've got this show, and I, suddenly I have responsibility. And I have this Irish Catholic sense of, I've got to do a good job. <laughs> and I've got to make sure that I please everyone, which is the least funny space to come from. What an unfunny approach. So my first year on the air, we did a lot of really inventive, fun comedy. But I was like, yes, yes, well, we'll return soon by your graces, and we'll see you back here when we resume the program. And I had, you know, sweating, and I hadn't hit puberty yet, and uh, people were like, I, I, I hate this woman. Uh, and it was very, people wrote the nastiest things. I mean, I just got destroyed in the press. I mean, our, your press can be mean. Our press was really mean. And, Man, did they let me have it. And um, I remember, this is a true story, I went and saw, uh, I was starting to see a therapist. I was under so much pressure and feeling like the whole world, you know. And so I went in to see the therapist, and I lay down, and I said, I think people hate me. I think they want me to go away. I think um, they think that I'm terrible at what I do and that I'm a failure. And the therapist said, listen, these are voices we all have and these are voices that recur, and it comes from your shame center, and it can happen, but we all have these voices, and it's just a voice, it's not real. And I said, you ass, it's the cover of USA Today. <laughs> I held up the paper, and it said all of that stuff. <laughs> and he was like, uh, well, okay. Uh, maybe the paper is a dream. I'm like, no, it's a paper. I could shove it in your mouth right now. Well, who's to say I'm real, you know? <laughs> That'll be $185. So, uh, but then it, it got, things got better, and then the critics turned around, but man, that was, that was uh, and now I'm in this unique position that's crazy. It's another thing to tell you about, which is all these years later, I just, was convinced, I just said, well, people hate us. They hate us. And we got through those first couple of years. And then, and now I meet these people who inspire me. Um, you know, my, one of my favorite comedians uh, working, and he's just a lovely person and brilliant, brilliant comic, John Mulaney. And, and, yeah. Okay. Let's, let's not go too far, all right? <laughs> no, he, what's he's that? He's coming to the union in March. Oh, he's coming in March. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm here now. 
tell. <laughs> the guy's good, but let's not get crazy. No, he's, he deserves that, and he's just so funny, and he writes, he's such a brilliant writer and such a great performer, and, but recently I got to be friends with him, and he would say, oh yeah, I used to watch you that first year, wasn't it great? And I was like, what are you talking about? Everyone hated me, and he said, I wasn't aware of that. Me and my friends just thought it was really weird and cool and funny. And I said, why couldn't you have come and said that to me back in 1993? And he's like, well, I was 11. <laughs> <laughs> I think an 11-year-old in pajamas coming to see you would be weird, you know? <laughs> but that's the other thing, too, is that if I was just going off of my feeling of how things were going or the public perception of how they were going, all the evidence that I had was, was awful. All the scientific evidence was not good. Ratings bad, critics bad, um, you know, vo word on the street, you suck. Uh, go home, you suck, uh, just, just tough. And then all these years later, these people whose comedy I just love tell me, oh, we really liked you in the, you know, it was really, you know, we, we were watching right away and we liked it. And I, I didn't know that, but I think that's something inspirational for people to know is that, um, again, going back to, we live in this culture of you're constantly checking in to see how you're doing and how's other, someone else doing compared to you. And you're getting a lot of inaccurate information about how you're doing, you know? How you're doing as a person, as an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old or whatever, who's here at Oxford at this moment, how you're doing, you just don't know. It really is about how you feel about how you're doing and, um, and checking in constantly on social media, I think is, very tricky thing. And I'm not some old guy saying social media is a bad thing. I'm very young. Uh, <laughs> no, I love social media, and I think it is mostly a force for good. I just think it's like one of those 52-48 propositions where it really is, there's so much there that can be very difficult. And I think there's a lot of pressure on this generation. There's so much pressure on you that wasn't on my generation. We could be blissfully ignorant about what someone else had for breakfast. Uh, you know, uh, how much they love avocado toast and how many likes that got. Um, we, we didn't know all that. And I think, so there's a lot of pressure that people are dealing with here that I'm sympathetic to. I think it's time for questions from the audience now. So if you have a question, please raise your hand, wait for the microphone to come to you, and please stand up while asking your question. Can we start with the hand in the ba very back row over there, the member with the glasses? You're at Oxford and you just said the guy with the glasses. There's only one person with the glasses in the back. Uh, the learned fellow who takes things seriously. Yes, yes, you. Stand. Hello. Be I've seen. Been I've been watching you for many years. Louder! <laughs> What's I've your name? I've been watching you for many years. What's your name? Kevin. Kevin. Hello, yeah. Kevin. Uh, <laughs> Uh, how much of the Georgian Slansky character is like made up? Because I feel like I've told you he is real. He's a real, <laughs> he's a real person. And I've had arguments with him when there's no cameras around that are hysterical. And I'm thinking, why aren't there cameras rolling right now? He is a real person. Does he sometimes put maybe an extra ten percent on it? Yes, he does. But don't pour during my answers. Um, <laughs> everyone's like. <laughs> Everyone's like, I think he's gone mad. <laughs> you won't pour as I speak. <laughs> Where's my cab to Cambridge? I'm going now. <laughs> um, yeah, but he's pretty much that guy. He really is. He really is. Okay, thank you. I thank you. <laughs> I thank you, Kevin. Kevin, you get to keep that mic. That's yours to have. <laughs> That's a new thing we're doing here at the union. Once you get the mic, don't give it back. All right, there are all these people, and then they have to wait for the mic to get to them. This is awkward. He's right there. I can hear him. Hi. Oh, yes. Um, hello. How are you? Hi. I'm good. I'm really excited to see you. Um, very excited to see you. Love your podcast. Um, Thank you very much. Um, so, especially love Sona. So, hi to Sona, I guess. Well, she's not here. She'll I never know. hear about this. <laughs> yeah, you. Um, so, yeah, you talked about Jordan, and you mentioned Sona already. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your relationship with Sona. It always seems pretty antagonistic, but also that you really, really 
love each other, right? Well, is that's that how it's, yeah. You know, it is funny. Uh, my wife's here, uh, and she can validate uh, the, the actress playing my wife is here. Uh, <laughs> that's my wife, Liza, right there. And she will tell you that dealing with Sona on the phone about anything in our, it is that same person. She's 100% authentic. It's my assistant. I hired her. Um, and then uh, one day I heard this strange language and I heard her, t and it was her talking to her mom. She'd, I, she had never, I'd only he heard her speak fluent Southern California English. And she was having this heated conversation. And I came out and I said, what's going on? And she said, I was just having an, uh, a talk with my mom. And I didn't realize that they both speak Armenian. And they were both speaking fluently. And she's very loud. And when they're having a normal, pleasant conversation, it sounds intense. <laughs> and so I came in and I said, well, it sounded like you were uh, two Draculas were having an argument, you know? <laughs> and immediately in that moment, we decided, like, he's, this, either, this person's either offensive or this is going to work. And it worked. Uh, we just, because she came right back at me, and, you know, living off potatoes and, uh, <laughs> Um, you know, and it, it just gelled and we're constantly, you know, we just did a thing recently where I got her to, it was uh, a real, cameras were rolling, we were just talking and then she started talking about all the stuff she's stolen from stores and, <laughs> and she just went and she was like, I took this lip gloss, I took that from this store and she knew, she had an encyclopedic knowledge of all the things that she's stolen <laughs> over the years. So I said, we should do a remote where you and I go back to all those stores and try and make amends. And it's stuff like she's, you know, it's all like $1.99 lip gloss, a headband from Forever 21, you know, uh, some socks with a tassel on them from Gap for Kids. I don't know why she stole that. Uh, just weird stuff, but, you know, it, it, it just is so silly and it works that that's, I think, one of the reasons that we keep doing it. And we did have a very nice, we, I took her to Armenia it was really fun to go to Armenia, and we didn't know what the end would be, and we had so much funny, fun adventures in Armenia, and I took her, there's women there whose profession is to find people, a husband, and you go, and we were looking at all these pictures of these guys in her little house in Armenia, and um, so that was a fun remote, but then at the end, we ended up going to uh, the Holocaust Memorial, and that was incredibly powerful and really amazing, and I do love it when a show like Conan Without Borders, which is on Netflix, can encompass really laugh-out-loud funny moments, and then a real moment that didn't feel exploitative at all. It felt, we went there, she wanted to go, we told the cameraman, you gotta be out of sight. I told all the writers and the producers, you have to go away, and we just had this great moment, and she was crying her eyes out, and it was really powerful, and it was a beautiful thing. And wherever I go now, Armenians come out and they say, Conan, Barev, and I say, Inch Pasek, Lavem, you know, and um, that's all I know. And, uh, <laughs> um, but but it's, that's been the really nice thing, is that it's all about making connections. And, you know, is, is, uh, I, I'm a, sort of addicted to going to different places and trying to see, do they, do they, can I connect with these people in Haiti, in Seoul, South Korea, in, um, you know, in Italy, in, we just went to Ghana for a year of return and had some really great moments. And, you know, I'm the whitest person in the world, but it just, and we had a guy who I was talking to and I'm trying to learn about culture in Ghana and he's from Ghana and he's this, you know, he's just this really interesting, funny guy, but he's looking at me and he went, your skin, I'm wearing, I was wearing a short sleeve shirt. And I went, those are freckles. And he was like, uh-huh. And I said, what's the matter? And he went, I thought you were sick. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had the experience of going to a club with him and being the only white person in the club and realizing this is how my friends who are African-American who, you know, live in, in uh, work on my show, if they go somewhere and they're the only person of color there, I know how they, that I, I see now, I, I see how it all gets flipped around. And I love that. I love trying to get outside myself and connect to people and, and see if we can make them laugh. You know, that, that's just a lovely part of the job. Could we go to, the member in the blue in the back. 
Hey, Conan, big fan. Uh, just wondering. You've got a very laid-back vibe, man. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. I'm from Canada. Um, <laughs> what did he say? I couldn't hear him. I could. What? Um, What's it's that? kind of freaky with all. Oh, you're eyes. from Canada. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. That too. It's cold. But. Um, but you just stood up with this. So like, hey, man. <laughs> um, I love it. My question is, so with like all eyes on us, with social media and stuff, it feels like everyone's kind of always watching us at this stage in our lives. And for those of us who have uh, maybe like TV and media ambitions, should we be extra careful with what we put out there? Or should we just kind of like go with it and accept that society will maybe change its views and, you know, like how, how, when you grew up, there, there wasn't maybe that, there was no smartphone, sorry. Um, so, <laughs> what you're trying to say, if I can interpret, in my day, to get a dick pic out there was very hard. <laughs> you needed. You needed a lot of equipment. You needed. It was like nine people involved. And then you had to mail them, and it was, it wasn't worth it. There was no erotic zing at the end, you know? It was a difficult time. Um, you know, I, that's the part where I think, uh, yes, obviously, I mean, look, we're all, I see it both ways, because we, we uh, currently have a president in the, uh, in the United States who seemingly has done all kinds of things. Uh, that would have ended anybody else's career five years ago. And his attitude seems to be, eh, we're not talking about that right now. And then people, <laughs> he has that weird sort of Obi-Wan Kenobi, these are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> he does the most outrageous things, you know? And you're like, wait a minute, nine porn stars? And he's like, these are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> and we're all like, these are not the droids. Are. And um, so, you know, I, I think it would be a real shame if you didn't, everybody, uh, I'm gonna quote Hannah Montana now, uh, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has those days. Uh, that's all I know. I know that because I, <laughs> I had a five-year-old daughter when, uh, when she was all the rage and she had a pen that every time you clicked on it would sing that song uh, until the battery died. And uh, I ended up just dip, digging a well and dropping it into the well. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, don't, I would hate for your generation to think, I would hate it if five and six and seven year olds were thinking, I might want to be in broadcasting someday. I might want to be a comedian. Uh, I better keep my social image pristine for all time. I think that's an unrealistic expectation, personally. So I think things are going to adjust. Do I think that people should try to be civil and show common sense, yes. I think it's a really good idea if you're gonna be drinking a lot uh, to maybe put the phone in a box and lock it, you know, <laughs> uh, until you come back around again, um, just because, uh, but I think there's gonna be a, I think your generation, and I say this, I, I think optimistically, I think your generation is going to, we're in, we've been going through a moment where people can go back and look back 15 years and say, oh my God, or eight years, or three years and say, look what you did at this party, and we have this picture, and your life is over, and I, I think it would be terrible for everyone in this room. I mean, I have children, I have a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old. I don't want them to go through life thinking that. You're, this is the age where you're supposed to uh, be making some mistakes, robbing some banks, committing <laughs> some crimes. Uh, but um, but at, at the same time, I think, yeah, you're definitely, you wanna be responsible with that phone in your camera, you know, uh, or that camera in your phone. Um, you know, you, and so I'm probably the last person to be able to give you advice, but I, 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 I hate the sound of, I, what I'm hearing from you is a 19 or 20 year old person who's saying, I'm bright, I've got a future, but how worried do I have to be about everything I do on social media? And I, I would like to think you don't have to be that worried about it. Could we go to, the number over there. The These silences in between questions are great. 
Hi, Gunan. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> nice to be here. Um, you talked about how you like your comedy to be on universal topics, so it can be timeless. But do you think that besides that, um, there's like every generation has any particular ty type of humor? And if so, what does it take to make a millennial laugh? Oh, well, uh, clearly I wouldn't know, but I would. S <laughs> but no, I don't, I, don't, I don't think, you know, I think the best th thing you could do is go on like Adult Swim. And that's just an interesting example. Or just go on the internet. There's so many different types of comedy. There's, there's always been different brands and styles of comedy. And right now, I see all of it happening simultaneously. I do not think there is a type of humor that works for millennials. And then if you go 20 years later, there's a different sensibility that works for them. I think there are certain universal elements of comedy that surprise people and are funny. Uh, and we tend to agree, for the most part, on what those are. And there's, uh, I, but I don't think there's something that's specific to your generation where I think, oh, this is what a millennial thinks is funny. Because look at all the different kinds of comedy that are thriving right now. They're so completely different, you know? And there's, there, you have, even late night shows in America, the distance between, say, what a Colbert's doing or what a James Corden's doing is just completely different. It doesn't mean that one's bad and one's good. They're just very different. So I, I, and, I, and if I tried to say one of those senses of humor is for millennials and one isn't, I would be mistaken. Yeah. There's a guy right I here. remember at, on the end of the row over there. I'm just going to yeah. point out there's a man right behind me who's... <laughs> who could physically assault me if we don't get to him. Wait, I think I can take him. <laughs> Stand up. Stand up. Oh, shit. Okay, forget it. No, I won't fight him because I don't want to. <laughs> I'd hurt him, I think. Hello. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh Thank you again for coming to speak with us and not going to the other place. Um, I was just wondering... You it's know, like Voldemort now. <laughs> <laughs> the name is the place whose name should not be spoken! Um, I was wondering, you know, with your show and the podcast as well, are there any other sort of great passion projects that you sort of have always wanted to do on your horizon um, as you enter your golden age? It's funny you mention that because there's a little meet and greet beforehand. I guess people, uh, I don't know if they won something or lost something, but <laughs> they had to talk to me for about 10 minutes before we came out here. And one of them said, so, about to retire, eh? <laughs> <laughs> and you do hit a certain age or when you've been around long enough where you guys can look up uh, clips of me from 93 and it probably looks to you like this is footage from World War II. Um, <laughs> You know, and uh, I don't blame you for, for thinking that. What's funny is, as you go along, I remember really clearly being your age. I remember it so well, and being uh, at, at Harvard, we had a room that's just like this. It's called Sanders Theater, and I did comedy there uh, one night, performed comedy there one night, and um, I remember I'm so connected to being that age, and I honestly don't feel that differently now. That's a very strange thing, and I know that to everyone here, you'd think, that's impossible. It must hurt every time your heart beats. Uh, <laughs> your stool must be a white gel. Uh, that part's true. Um, they don't know why. Uh, highly flammable. Anyway, the point is this. The point is that, uh, that I don't feel any different I really do feel like I just like being silly the way I did when I was 15, 18, 25, 35, uh, 45, um, and now I'm 56 and I'm the same way. If there's certain people I see, I will get, phys like, you know, people I've known for a long time, I'll wrestle them in a silly way. I just I have that very, uh, very childlike attitude about things. And uh, so, 
I never really think that much about, well, now I'm this age, and it's time for me to go into that sweet light, you know? <laughs> uh, I, I think most people don't think that way. They just, I mean, I like that I'm sort of oddly not self-conscious about it, um, and I, 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 I have an ability, I think, to, in a childlike way, just be where I am now, which is I love doing the, the show. I really love doing the travel specials. Those are a joy, the Conan Without Border shows. And I love doing the podcast. And then when they invent or I stumble upon some other way to be silly or to sort of get my essence out there, um, that I will probably try and do that. So it's very interesting. It's, it's why you probably look at people. When I was your age, I used to look at people and think, why don't they stop now? You know, there must, there's a place they can go. <laughs> And they're cared for, you know? And, but then you get, to, you get to start to be that age, and you, you think, why would I do that? I feel pretty good, and I like doing this. So I think I'll just keep taking a stab at it, you know, until, uh, you know, people like you say, we really don't want to hear what you have to say, <laughs> you know? And um, that would be rude to write me that. Just don't invite me. The point is, is if you went out of your way to write me and say, we don't want you to come, that would have been incredibly rude. <laughs> you did point out, and I want to bring this up, I said today, I thought, oh, we were walk you gave me a nice tour, because you wanted to show me what it was like out in the rain. And, uh, <laughs> but you were very lovely, you were really nice, and, and you gave me this great tour, and then at one point I was saying like, so, kind of like trying to get to how did you decide to invite me, and you went, we invite lots of people. <laughs> <laughs> Thousands and thousands. <laughs> and every now and then, some sucker says, okay, I'll pay my own airfare. That was, that was really, I, that was a really funny part, was my manager, who's been with me forever, he's always used to, he, this is, it's his job, it's what he does, so he didn't get the memo, you know, but my, my, my uh, one of, someone in my office told me, you've been invited to speak here, and I know what this is, and I thought, this is really cool, and I want to do that, and that's during a week when I could get to, to London, so let's do it. And then I think uh, Gavin Pallone, my manager, was like, he, he, he told me, and he said, I called them. I talked to them to try and hammer them on the money. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who it was, but I just pictured somebody picking up the phone, like, there's no money, what are you talking about? And then he's like, well, then he wants uh, seven first-class airplane. No, he gets nothing. It's the honor of it all. <laughs> and he called me up, honor of it all? What is this crap? <laughs> we'll get our money somehow. I know it. <laughs> Someone's going to lose a scholarship because of this. That'd be so great if we took away some, like someone who really deserved it, their scholarship. <laughs> and then I'm just driving around LA in a Bugatti that says, Oxford! <laughs> what an ass. Unfortunately, we don't have time for any more questions. I'm sorry. But thank you so much for coming here. Can Please. I just say, yes. uh, I know that uh, you, you want me out. Uh, <laughs> but um, this really is... Uh, this is legitimately a, a joyous thing to get to do, to come, to get an opportunity to come to speak uh, to so many young, smart people, and it's just absolutely lovely. This has been a real treat for me, so thank you for having me. Appreciate